working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Sandy Gennaro. Over the many decades, Sandy has worked with Cindy Lauper, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, Bo Diddley, Johnny Winter, The Monkees, Joe Lynn Turner, Michael Bolton, Benny Mardonis, the German band Kraft, The Mamas and the Papas, and John Paris. He has recorded several top ten singles and has performed for over a billion fans spanning his 50-year career. Before his move to Nashville in early 2014, Sandy gave lessons, master classes, and inaugurated the music business program at the Drummers Collective in New York City, now known as The Collective. As an inspirational speaker, he has brought his Beats presentation to corporations and groups looking for a renewed sense of purpose and enthusiasm, increased passion, tenacity, and renewed engagement in their work. Beats is an acronym for Belief, Enthusiasm, Attitude, Tenacity, and Service. Before we get started, let's do our bi-monthly check-in on Arjuna Contreras as he makes the move from Texas to Nashville. Hey, Matt. How's it going, man? Hey, good, man. How are you? I'm good. Had a, <clears throat> a short run of shows this last week, and the last last one was in Chattanooga, so I was able to sweet-talk our tour manager and bus driver into dropping me off in Nashville on the band's way back to Dallas. Oh, nice. <laughs> Only issue, though, is my car is actually in Dallas, so it can be kind of, <laughs> kind of a weird week here in Nashville. But uh, There's an Alan Jackson song about that. I left my car in Dallas. Left my car, left my car in Dallas last night. Yeah, how I wish <laughs> Something that, like that Dallas was in Tennessee. Because I, <laughs> I left my car there. I think that's the lyric. I right. Know. I don't know. You know <laughs> sounds, you, sounds about right. Yeah, you probably played that when you played Downtown Broadway. <laughs> Perhaps I yeah, I think actually I did. That's why it sounds familiar to me. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that that was that was something else that uh you know, I played a, a ten that guess this we haven't talked since then, but I played a, a ten to two Friday night shift uh down there, which as most people would would probably think is a pretty wild time down on Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, no, the gig went really well. You know, I'm super glad that I did it, mm-hmm. got the experience, you know, and, um, you know, the lead up to the gig, like how I got it was uh, I had just gotten back into town and was hanging out with a few friends. You know, that was like on a Monday or a Tuesday. And then um, on Thursday, I got a message from someone I had met that night just out of the blue saying, hey, man, uh, some friends of mine need a drummer for tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you think do you want to do it? You know, for a couple minutes there, I was, you know, I thought to myself, man, that's a lot to to be ready for, you know, in in one, in basically 24 hours, <laughs> you know, like, because, nice. you know, I knew there's going to be like, you know, a long song list of, you know, potential tunes. And, you know, of course, there would be a lot of stuff that I, there would be no way that I could know how to do, you know, mm-hmm. endings of songs and arrangements and stuff that are standard down there on Broadway. Right. Um, I honestly felt like a little bit insecure, but then it's like I something a thought struck me like a bolt of lightning that it's like, man, I moved to Nashville to play with more musicians and look for more opportunity, and you know, no, no chance that you get is going to be perfect, you know. So right, now's right. the time to now's the time to rise to the occasion, you know, and you know, sure enough, like you know, so I agreed to it, and 
you know, the band leader called me and we, you know, talked a bit and he, he found out, you know, he realized it was my first gig on Broadway, you know, and I, and I kind of wanted to try to give him an out, you know, and say, Hey man, you know, I understand if you, you know, if you need someone who's already been doing it a while down there, then, you know, it's totally cool. And, and he's like, well, no, man. He's like, I, we we all we know you can play already. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's gonna be yeah. cool. You know, it sure enough, it was. You know, I mean, it it went really well. You know, obviously, I mean, I have a lot to learn about playing down there. I mean, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, there's a ton of like special things, you know, about songs that you can only learn, um, you know, after playing down there for a while. Yes. You know, arrangements yes. and endings and stuff like that. But I mean, I really think that the you know, the message that everyone can take from, from that is like, you, you can't be afraid of the new opportunities and the unknown, you know? You know, this thing that we're doing here, this will be on my episode with the interview with Mm -hmm. uh, Sandy Gennaro. For those people listening to you on Zach's episode, it will be the episode before, because we, we present Mm -hmm. you on uh, every two episodes. But Sandy says, he learned from his mom early on, if you want to learn to swim, jump in the deep end, and you'll learn to swim real mm, fast. Uh, right. <laughs> well, man, let's catch up again. What's your handle on Instagram, by the way? Yeah, my Instagram handle is at Arjuna underscore, uh, and Arjuna is A-R-J-U-N-A mm-hmm. underscore. Well, sweet, man. Uh, safe travels. Have fun in Texas. And um, we'll check back in with you real soon. Sounds good, Matt. Talk to you soon, brother. Okay. Thanks, man. If you want to support what we do here along the right side of the homepage on the Working Drummer website, you can find buttons for PayPal and Patreon, and any donation in any amount is greatly appreciated. You can follow us on social media, and if you want to be featured on Instagram, post pictures and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer. We love seeing what you are all up to. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube now as well. If YouTube is your choice for streaming audio, every couple weeks we will be putting out a group of 10 episodes for you to visit for the first time or for revisiting the Working Drummer Podcast archives. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel, and leaving a rating and review on any or all of these platforms is very helpful for us. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Sandy Gennaro. There's nothing that I say either that I'm going to say here or in my beats presentation that I give to corporate America. Um, There's nothing that I could say that I profess that I haven't experienced myself. And it's, it's, I still feel like I'm in the course, on the course of the journey. I'm not at the pinnacle. I'm not at the end. I'm not, I don't feel like I've even peaked yet. Mm. And I'm going to, I'm 60, just turned 67 years old. You wake up one morning and you're in your 60s. It seems like yesterday. The, the kind of analogy I have, I was with Cindy Lauper 33 years ago, yeah. 1984, 85. Yeah. Yeah. And if you add 33 years, that that 33 years ago seemed like a blink of an eye. I, I still look at pictures and I, I go right back on stage with Cindy, for example. I mean, it seems like yesterday. But I add those blink of an eye 33 years, and I am 90, 
100 years old. 33 years from now, yeah. I'll be 100 years old. And that, to me, boggles. Doesn't freak me out or anything, but it just goes to show that the, the, the longer you're on this path called life, the longer you're on it, uh, relatively the treadmill starts going faster. Mm. In other words, things seem yeah. to, the years go by faster the longer you're on this mm -hmm. earth. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm a testament to that. that. That's the way it's been for me. Yeah. Anyway, when I was young and I, you know, it was, you know, it, my birthday is in July and I used to think, well, can I have this for my birthday? No, wait till Christmas. And from July until December of any given year, when I was young, it used to take forever. Right. Forever. Right. But now it's like, oh, God, another week went by. It was like a... F mm -hmm. So there's a lesson in that little dissertation right there. It's like, enjoy everything while you have it and enjoy each day and, and the people around you because again the older you get you the more often you get news well this one passed away you're one of your peers oh yeah or one of your peers got came down with lung cancer and he's stage four and whatever i mean you know, so we we're not all all going to be twenty five and with the feeling of in, invincibility yeah. forever. So. It's it's weird because there's a balance between this hunger and trying to do all the things that you want to do and accomplish the things that you want to accomplish, and yet taking the time to reflect on what you have and what you've been uh, the opportunities you've been given to um, do the things you want to do in life whether that involves business music right. relationships other things like that and I think that there's times we don't take a break and reflect upon the rare opportunity that a lot of us have to make music our life right and and again i i i i'm throwing a, a, a i'm painting a broad brush here when i say making music your life doesn't mean necessarily being a full-time player or a full-time teacher just the fact that we've discovered something about music that we want to be involved in, whether it's playing drums part-time or in our church or teach or just be a fan. It makes life that much better. Right. You know, uh, I also know that we're always looking for man once i get here i'll be happy once i accomplish this and you're talking about a journey you're talking about of course that 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 classic scenario of it's not the destination it's the journey it's, it is and and 
If you if you fee, if you think like what you just said, well, if a, if I can only have this gig, I'll be happy. If I can only have this car, I'll be happy. If I can only have this woman, I'd be happy. If I can only have uh, this house, I can be happy. If you think like that, mm-hmm. you'll never have enough. You'll never have enough because once you get the woman, once you get the house, once you get the car, yeah, the novelty will be there. But then if you need outside things to make you a happy person inside, no material thing will ever make you happy inside if you're not genuinely happy inside from the Mm get-go. Nothing. You'll you the the infatuation will be satisfied. You'll have the Mercedes. You'll have the nice house on a hill, but after three weeks later, you'll be empty. You'll be wanting to fill that void again because it's a void within you, and nothing outside you is going to fill that void that's within you. But if you're grateful for what you have. And you look around every once in a while, like I do, and I just look around this room, mm-hmm. and and the flood of memories come back, and you're grateful for what you've done, and grateful for the the life that you've been given by, call it God, the higher power, the source, or whatever, because we're not here on our own, mm-hmm. in a shell trying to make our way through this life for, for our lifetime. We, 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 we have to align with the higher power. That's mm-hmm. very, very important. I'm not going to do a religious dissertation right now, but the spirituality part of it is, is very, very important because mm-hmm. if you align with that power that makes the grass grow, it makes the sun come up, you have a very, very strong and powerful ally. And it's all in your mind how you align with that. And, you know, and I cite examples from my career that by thinking a certain way and by acting a certain way and by treating people a certain way, the universe is in your corner. It's like walking and living with the wind to your back, you don't, again, especially if you're in the arts and you don't know where the call is going to come from or who the call is going to be, but you get the call and you go, you do your best, you prepare, you do that gig. And when you're on that gig that you got the call because you thought positive and you prepared for it, then that gig leads to something else. And you prepare for that, you know, it's like a leapfrog. It's like, it's like a a chain of events that happens, but you don't know where the next link is. You don't know what the next link is. So you got to have a very strong constitution of faith and positive anticipation Mm -hmm. that what the future holds you may there may be a veil in front of you you don't know what the future is you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring 
next month, next. As long as you consistently work in a positive mindset towards a goal, mm -hmm. then the universe will take it from there. And and you don't. Again, I can go on for an hour. <laughs> And you won't say another word there, Matt. I can speak for another hour. But, um, but yeah, it's all in your mindset. So appreciate what you have, and you'll always have enough if you appreciate what you have, especially the people in your life, your family in your life, and, and, uh, mm -hmm. and like that, whatever. Okay. Well, if I could add to that, I think that that positive energy and all those things... People pick up on that, and they like to be around that. Absolutely, and they feed off that energy, and they will be those people that are attracted to that positive energy. You create a, a sphere of of a, a brain trust around you, where people want to be near you. People want to help you. Yeah. But why, how do you create that feeling in other people that they want to help you is by your willingness to help other people. Yeah. It has to start with you helping other people and serving other people. And then the universe will bring those people around to help you. But you don't sit around going, all right, I'm waiting for people to help me now, okay? No, it's not like that. You have to initiate. It has to come from you. And it's a feeling. It's the word I use called altruism. Thinking outside yourself. Thinking how you could be... Uh, some a person sitting next to you or across from you or the person scanning your groceries will be better off for you standing there and if you even if you say hello look yeah. at the name tag and say oh hello denise how are you doing today you lift them up for one second and and you you break them out of their trance of scanning groceries and they're saying hi to another human being yeah. and you talk to them small to hey you're going to watch the yankee game tonight you're going to have oh you have anything planned exciting what time do you get off from work small talk that means nothing but it means a lot to the person you're right, saying it to right and the universe will take care of you if you act like that. Again, my acronym that I work off of, uh, it, it's, a, it's a set of principles that if you weave these principles into the fabric of your everyday life, magic happens. Something called serendipity or something called synchronicity happens. And the acronym is belief is beats. Yep. Belief, enthusiasm, attitude, tenacity, and service. Mm. And when you think like that, with using those acronyms, um, magic happens in your life. People come out of the woodwork to help you. And again, if we had five hours and about a six pack of beer, 
we could, I could, I could explain every incident in my career. And if you'll ask me some, some of them will, will come out in this. We've podcast. got two hours and a twelve pack of beer. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> awesome. You know, I was gonna uh, ask you about this a little bit later, but while you're on it, can we just run those down real quick? Uh, belief. Well, this, the, the name of my, well, I do speak to corporate, I speak to universities, um, uh, and the, again, I mentioned before about the, the odds of a musician making a living, not to mention a 50, over a half a century living. Um, and I cite some examples from my career to, to back up the acronym. So, uh, belief, uh, to me, you have to, again, I touched upon it before, but you got to believe in a power greater than ourselves, no matter what you call it. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that say you got to believe in a certain religion. To me, the different religions that exist on this planet are different destinations, a different paths to the same destination. Mm -hmm. We all, uh, all religions believe in a power greater than the human self. Mm -hmm. There's a, okay. Then you gotta believe in you. You gotta believe in yourself. You gotta keep yourself health, healthy. You gotta believe in, in your company's uh, mission statement. You have to really believe in your heart that like and the example I give is when I uh, received uh, received that that drum behind that monitor that that's the first drum I ever uh, can I step away from the mic for yeah a yeah yeah there's a toy drum that, that looks a like toy drum I got and, and uh, and if I was able to show a picture on this podcast you'll see uh, I was. I'm gonna take a picture of it. You actually. can. I was three years old when I got this drum beneath the Christmas tree. For, I got it for Christmas one year when I was three, and I never let it out of my sight. And my dad used to play big band music around the house. He was a big fan of Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and Louis Belson. And I always, so I always knew what rhythm and what the sound of the drums were, but it wasn't until the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan where I actually saw a, a, a person, Ringo, playing a drum set and performing music live on Ed Sullivan with the Beatles. And I saw the reaction that the, the audience had mm -hmm. to the Beatles appearing on TV, and that locked it up for me. Yeah. So my belief, I always knew that I wanted to do that. And I, I had the picture in my mind, not of the TV with the Beatles facing me singing, but I, I pictured the view from Ringo's drum seat, looking out into the audience, Seeing the screaming girls, and I always wanted that. And could you imagine uh, years later, I was on tour in Europe, and I, I faced an audience from my drum set of 110,000 people. 
And regardless of the the pitfalls between seeing Ed Sullivan and and eventually playing to 110,000 people, there was a lot of pitfalls in between. But the belief in the fa- and I and I again this goes with I have a story about tenacity, but. You have to maintain the belief. You have to visualize as if you've already received that. I used to go to bed at night picturing myself playing in front of an audience of that size and, and believing that you already have done it. Like you, you know, you, you believe that it's you're, you're worthy of that dream. It's like you're writing the script of your own movie before the movie comes out. Sure. You 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 write whatever you want and then you move towards it. And that's the belief part. You've got to believe again. The most important thing is believing in a power great greater than yourself and if you act and 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 speak and act in a, a certain way, in a good way, uh, uh, serving others, um, that universe and God will come to your behalf and, mm-hmm. and present opportunities to you that out of the woodwork, years later, for example, um, that you had no idea existed. The possibilities are endless. Can I ask you, did you have a teacher or a guide to help assemble this? No. Nope. Um, nope. I just sat down one day and I said, what are the attributes? What, what have you done in your life, Sandy? How did you act in your life to to put yourself in the position to play with Cindy Lauper, to put yourself in the position that Joan Jett asks you to do her tour, to put yourself in a position where you're, you're on the road with Pat Travers in the early 80s, but then he calls you back from 80, I left him originally in 83, he called me back in 2010, so what is that, 27 years later to rejoin his band? So what is it? How do you act? How do you, why do people want to be, want you to be in their band? Why do people want to be your friend? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I said, well, to myself, I said, self, uh, well, you know, I, I always believe that I can sit in that chair, that Ringo, that view that Ringo had and look at the audience. And that has been achieved many, many times. And um, I've always visualized it. And I never left sight of that dream in, in spite of the obstacles that were placed in front of me because the music business is a is a awesome business when you're successful but getting to that point you're swimming with sharks and you're swimming in a very murky pond murky ocean swimming with sharks and you have to 
you know, when, when problems or obstacles come, that's God's way of seeing, testing you how bad you want what's on the other side of that problem. Yeah. You can't give up. You can never, ever give up. And I'm, again, I can cite examples where I, I almost did give up, uh, at one point in my career. My personal life was in a shambles. My first, what I call my practice marriage early in the 70s was in a shambles. I was living in LA, nothing was happening. Everybody was screwing me over. Promises never kept. Money coming to me was never given to me. And I was disgusted, but I finally, I, I, it's, it's, I don't want to get into the big long story, but I wrote uh, 50 resumes to managers. I was the lowest point I was ever in my life emotionally. Mm -hmm. Okay, I wanted to quit drumming. This was 1977 and living in Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles to get my first big break. Yeah. And I, I, um, I sent 50 resumes to to managers of bands that I really, really liked. And and when I was crying in my pillow, I asked God, I prayed and I said, just, sh I don't want you to find me a gig. I want you to just show me, give me a sign of how I can go about putting myself in a position of getting a gig a worthwhile gig of people that would appreciate me and I will bring something to the table. And about three days later, I was driving around LA and I found myself almost being guided into the parking lot of a library. And I went into the library, I went into the reference section and I borrowed or, or I sat down with Billboard Magazine puts out a directory every year called talent management directory i looked in that directory and i took that took down the names and addresses of 50 managers that managed bands that i really liked one of them was led zeppelin's manager peter grant i went home typed resume on a Re Remington typewriter. I had the thing mimeographed and a copy. This is 1970, no computers now, no sure, cell sure. phone. And I sent the resume out. One of the references on that resume was a gentleman, one of my idol, a drummer that was my idol growing up. And I ended up meeting him in LA. His name is Carmine Apathy. I put him, I asked him if I can have him as a reference. He said, sure. This is a, seem, may, seem, may seem like a long story, but this is the condensed yeah. version. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I sent the resume to Peter Grant amongst 49 other managers. Uh, I didn't get one call back, but from one person. And the person... Peter Grant, the Led Zeppelin's manager, Peter Grant lives in England, but the address in the directory was Swan Song Records, their record label in, in Manhattan. And the resume arrived there. It never got forwarded to Peter Grant in England. The attorney for Led Zeppelin, his name was Steve Weiss, 
open the resume and right at that point he's shopping songs around to labels written by Michael Bolton and Bruce Kulick as a matter of fact they were co-writing songs uh-huh. and and Steve Weiss the man the attorney for Led Zeppelin was shopping trying to get a band deal yeah. f- behind these songs well now labels are calling Steve Weiss going, hey, we want to see this band. We want to see this band. Well, Steve Weiss didn't have a band. He had a guitar player and a singer and the writers. He needed to find a bass player and a drummer. Right at that time, my resume arrives. But it again, it doesn't get folded to Peter Grant. Steve Weiss opens the resume my resume and oh a drummer i need a drummer right now but the the kicker is is that he sees carmine's name on the resume steve weiss used to be the attorney for vanilla fudge steve uh carmine's old band right calls carmine carmine vouches for me the next call steve weiss makes is to me in Los Angeles. This is Led Zeppelin's attorney calling me and I I was crying. <laughs> so I thought it was somebody in LA uh, playing a joke on me, whatever. He explains to me about the resume you sent to Peter Grant. I finally believed him. He said, do you want to fly to New York and audition for this band? Look, I just came from New York. <laughs> I was in LA at that point about two and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Trying to get my first big break. Sure. And it wasn't happening yeah. at all. Uh, a lot of negativity. Mm. LA, to me, my experience is a tough place to be if you don't have a resume. If you're trying to break in, mm-hmm. it's really a tough place to be. I found it that way. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, that that was my first big, my first big break. I ended up auditioning for the band. I got the gig. Three weeks later, we signed to Polygram Records. I flew back to L.A. signed to a record deal. All right. I left L.A. thinking that I was going to quit drumming. But I I held on to that dream and I said no I want that I want to have that view from Ringo's drum set of the of the that was the that was the driving yeah. the, the thing that dri- drove me so uh, after I flew back to L.A. about three months after that I found myself doing blackjack the band ended up getting called blackjack and we ended up doing our first record at Criteria Studios in Miami one of the biggest studios at the time in America it's still there I think Record Plan owns it Criteria Studios in North Miami and Tom Dowd, the legendary Tom Dowd, produced our first record. So from there, rehearsal, and then the 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 the, the dominoes kept falling. That was the first domino, mm-hmm. and the dominoes fell after that. The Blackjack gig led to uh, a gig with an album with Benny Mardonis, off of which came a top ten single, Into the Night. Uh, from from being involved with Polygram with 
both Blackjack and Benny Mardonis. That led to the Pat Travers gig. I met somebody on the Pat Travers gig that three years later led to Cindy Lauper's gig. Joan Jett came see me with Cindy Lauper on two different occasions. That brings me to the enthusiasm. Should um, I meant, I also want to mention in Blackjack, Jimmy Haslip. Was, Jimmy Haslip was the, was bass, the bass player. player. When I read that, I was completely blown away because, like, I'm a, I'm a huge uh, Alan Holdsworth fan. Ah. And there's some, and he's he was doing work with Alan right. years before he passed. Right. And I was like, what a band between Michael Bolton and this and a rock guitar player and Jimmy Haslip on bass and you on drums. I, that was an awesome band. We did two records, and uh, so right at right about that time, was Steve Weiss called me in L.A. Hey, you want to be the drummer? You know, you want to come and audition? He called Jimmy, and he pulled Jimmy. I don't know how he got a hold of Jimmy, but Jimmy Haslip was on the road with Tom Scott at the at the time. Okay, and Jimmy actually came known as a fusion. Jazzier. Now he's joining the rock band, and it was really cool to play left hand five string bass. It was That's cool, amazing. very cool. That's amazing. So, so the enthusiasm yes. of beats. We did the belief enthusiasm. Joan Jett saw me uh, uh, with Cindy Lauper in early in the tour, early in Cindy Lauper's tour. She saw me about three. Three or four or five months later, brought her manager back, Kenny Laguna, to see it again. And uh, and she saw the same enthusiasm that mm-hmm. I've, I played. You know, the first time she saw me, and months later, the same enthusiasm playing the same set, the same set of songs, same arrangements, same order everything so she that was one of the reasons why she eventually asked me one of the i still had audition and everything but one of the reasons why i held my enthusiasm was was Mm -hmm. over Mm -hmm. the top even though i was playing the same thing i never phoned it in in other words Yeah, yeah never and then the attitude is attitude positive. Having a positive attitude has a, your the you know our attitude and our way of thinking is really the only things that we have total control over is the way we think mm-hmm. and our perception of things. That the fact that problems happen to everybody. Sometimes problems defeat people. Sometimes problems make people stronger and we are all equipped to handle every problem that comes across our path right some people don't choose to handle it some people do and as we handle problems and come out the other side successful then that builds up our self-esteem to to defeat the next problem and on and on. It all goes according to how much belief you have in what you want to do with your life. Yeah. 
If your belief is flimsy and easily shakable, then, you know, you, you're going to be pushed to the side. You're going to be like a ship without a rudder on you, on the back of your boat. But if you have the, if you have a firm belief in what you want to do, and this has to do with life. It doesn't only have to do with becoming a, a musician and making a living sure. at it. Sure. It has to do with the relationships. It has to do with family. It has to do with, with the way you live your life. And if you have a positive attitude of, of a, the glass is half full, and you realize that uh, uh, problems are learning opportunities and growth opportunities. And that's how the conveyor belt moves forward is by growing, by you growing. Um, and then the tenacity, again, without telling the story again, but the tenacity part of it is me moving to L.A., 3,000 Miles from where I was brought up, leaving family with a brand new practice wife and uh, and being bitten by the sharks of the music business in L.A. and being effed over money wise and promised some certain things that never happened and me working a day job in L.A. to 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 you know, to keep the lights on yeah. while I auditioned for original projects. Because the original reason I moved to L.A. is to get involved with an original project as opposed to playing cover material in New York, mm -hmm. in clubs, playing, gotcha. you know, all of that. So I wanted to move. So there was the tenacity part of it. And then the service, one example that I... Again, mention the word altruism and making everybody fortunate for having crossed your path. You think about other people and your effect of other people, the decisions that you make, how they are going to affect other people. Right. You know, the person in the, in the supermarket, whatever. If you give people at uh, certain people advice on how to, and that advice leads to a, a monumental positive change in their life, um, I had the the honor and the pleasure of of, work, of teaching at the Drummers Collective in New York City for 27 years, and and you know the satisfaction that I got in serving my students and enable them enabling them to become better drummers um a uh, 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 quick story when I was with Pat Travers in the early 80s there was a gentleman standing in the doorway I was in a real big hurry after an arena show with Travers to get out of the dressing room um and I was the last one in the dressing room and there was a guy standing in the doorway with a pen and a camera. And I knew what he wanted, but uh, I had every right to kind of excuse myself because I was in a big hurry to get out and bypass this gentleman. But I didn't. I quickly looked at him. He didn't have a laminated pass on him. And I said... He must have BS'd his way 
backstage, gotten past security somehow, and he's not there to see Pat Travers. He was there to talk to me, the drummer. And I said, I'm going to give this guy some time. So I he I signed something for him. I took a picture with him, and then he asked me to help him get a gig in Manhattan because he was a bass player. This gig that I'm talking to him in in a, in a venue in Connecticut, and uh, so I was real nice to him. And I said, "Listen, I don't have that much time to talk to you." His name was David. I said, "David, here's my card. It's got my home number on it." My home address, I can't really help you out with your bass playing unless I hear you play. So send me a cassette of your playing. He could not believe that I gave him my home number. He said, this is your actual home. Again, 1981, mm -hmm. no cell phones, no, this is landline. Yeah, right. Okay, here's my home. He couldn't believe it. He hugged me and so tight. I said, David, I, I can't. I'm stunned. I can't lose my breath. You got to let me go. <laughs> he was like very, very excited. Long story short, three years later, he called me and he says, I'm managing this girl now. I just got assigned to Epic Portrait. Three years later. Three years later, uh, beginning of 83, uh, towards the end of 83, She's going to be the biggest thing. You, I want you to be the drummer in her band. We, we're finishing recording the the first record. Oh, it's a baby band, David. I don't know. I just got off an arena tour, whatever. Sandy, I don't want you to miss this opportunity. Come down and meet her. Again, I went down a record plant, met the woman, and it was Cindy Lauper. I ended up joining her band. And on on that tour, it turns out when I joined the band, nobody knew who she was. And the, the magic of that tour was over a six month period, it just skyrocketed. And I was in the middle of that hurricane and that tornado of the music yeah, business. And yeah, I yeah. saw how that music business machine can amp up and make somebody or somebody become a star, worldwide star within six months of the first album coming out. It was unbelievable, an unbelievable ride. And some nights I put my head on the pillow in a hotel and said, what if I were to blew this guy off? What if I were to blew the guy off in the doorway? I would have never had access to this gig. It was my playing that got the gig, but and, and my personality. But but the the doorway. Show me the door, and I will open it. And the Lord showed me the door there, and I I I out of service to other people, my feeling of actualism, not blowing the guy off in the doorway. Uh, I ended up at the gig, and the fringe benefit of that gig, and it's not such a small little fringe, towards the end of that tour, I met the woman that is still my wife today, That's and we're together 30, what, from eight, we met her in 84, and now, what is it, 2018. So it's 34 years. In November That's of, of 18, it'll be 34 years we're together. And we have 
you know, a healthy 24-year-old daughter that just graduated from Belmont, whatever. It's the spirit of service. You help other people. That's how I got into speaking. Mm -hmm. I threw a drumstick to a handicapped woman in a wheelchair in San Diego when I was with Pat Travers in 2015. And the husband Facebooks me the next day and is over the top gratitude. Oh, you have no idea. Nobody pays attention to my wife, whatever. Yeah. This gentleman is a motivational speaker. He says, I, I'm coming to Nashville to speak to speak at Bridgestone. You come to the, come to, uh, I'd like to buy you a coffee. Okay, I went and told him how I got Cindy's gig, and, but whatever. And during his presentation at Bridgestone later on that day, he said, Sandy, can I tell you tell the story of how you got Cindy Lopez tour? And I said, sure. It got a really good reaction from from the audience of Bridgestone. So he says to me after the gig, after his speaking gig, he says, "Why don't I'm speaking at FedEx in about three weeks? If you're free, come, and I'll have you tell the story yourself." Wow. So. I told the story myself at FedEx and it got a standing ovation. So he said, after that, he said, you have a career waiting for you in public speaking if you want to use your, and I'll help you uh, um, metamorphosize your stories and how it appear and how it, it applies to corporate and whatever. So that led to my speaking career, a very lucrative, career it is uh, once you get it going it takes right. a lot of work but it, yeah. but but the point is if I didn't throw that drumstick to a handicapped person yeah I wouldn't you know and there are examples uh, at least a dozen examples in my life where I reached out to somebody and made somebody better off for knowing me in some way that led to a monumental uh, um, gig or a monumental event in my life that I'm very, very grateful for. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. How I got the monkeys gig, I did somebody a favor. I, 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 this musical director calls me, his name is Jerry Renino. Hey, Sandy, I, I, got it. He, I, he, I didn't know him from Adam. This was um, sometime when I lived in New York. He said, I got your number from a mutual friend. My drummer bailed on me for a gig Saturday. Could you help me out? Who's the gig with? Well, it's a gig with the Tokens. They had a song called Lion Sleeps Tonight. It's an oldies gig. He says, I can't pay much. You gotta bring your own drum set. It's the middle of winter, and the gig is about 
I knew the gig was about two hours from my house. Do I want to do the gig for hardly any money? No. Do I help this guy out because he sounded really sincere and he really kind of begged me to do it? I said, okay, I'm going to help you out. Oh, he was very appreciative. Again, we got go to a gig, do the gig. We get along really good as bass. He was the bass player and musical director. So as a rhythm section, we got along really, really good. A couple of months after that, Sandy, I'm going on the road with this band. Do you want to be the drummer? It's the Monkees. Oh, and yeah. that gig led, that, that I did every reunion tour from 1987 until Davy Jones died in 2012. That was a very lucrative thing. And Davey did his solo casino dates when the monkeys weren't touring. I did those. I did some Mickey Dolan's dates when he went, when they, you know. So it led to not only a great friendship with those guys that I used mm -hmm. to rush home mm -hmm. from school and watch on TV, um, uh, but it was a very lucrative situation. Rehearsing for that monkey tour, which I wouldn't have gotten if I didn't help the Jerry out with the tokens gig. Yeah. Rehearsing for that, I, re I rented a room at the Drummers Collective. And I'm paying for my rehearsal time. And the, the Rob Wireless, who's sitting at the desk, used to own the Drummers Collective, said, "Who? what were you rehearsing in that room? And I said, I'm going on the road with the monkeys. He goes, did you ever think about teaching, teaching drums? I said, no, I never thought about teaching. And the thought came to my mind and what my mother used to always say to me, if you want to learn how to swim, jump in the deep end of the pool and you'll learn how to swim really fast. Sure. <laughs> so I thought about that in a split second and I said, yeah, I'd like to give it a try. He goes, okay, when you get off the road, contact me and I'll set you up with some students and you'll end up, you know, you'll teach at the Drummers Collective. You'll be our rock, our rock blues guy. Sure. And I said, sure. Was I intimidated by hearing by the Drummers Collective being a school renowned for its like jazz and reading and rudiments and marching and Afro-Cuban and Brazilian and reggae and all these different styles that were kind of foreign to me, but he wants me to teach there, sure. And that led to, I started teaching when I got off the road with the Monkees, 1987, and that gig led to, uh, I mean, that, that gig lasted until I moved to Nashville in 2014. Twenty-seven and you know, years. And you know what? That was my day gig. Yeah. Because everybody, know, every touring drummer knows when you get off the road, the next day you got nothing to do. Yeah. All right? So I had something to do. I went and taught drums. And not only was it income while I was in between tours and, and sessions, but it was my playing got much better mm. because I was on a click all the time in my lessons. And uh, and my reading got so much better yeah. because people were bringing songs to me to transpose or to write a chart for. And so it, it was an all-around thing. Now, why did that happen? That happened because I was at a studio rehearsing monkey material for a monkey tour. Why did that, why did that, why was it necessary? Because I helped a guy out play a to on a tokens gig, Yeah, you know? So it, that's the way it is. And, you know, it, that's just the tip of the iceberg of stories. I don't want but, to But I think the common thread throughout all these different stories is we talked about throwing everything at the wall in this business and some things stick and some things don't. But when the thing that sticks and working is working for you and the opportunity presents itself, you still have to be able to recognize that there is an opportunity. And every one of those stories you told, there was a point in which you're, you took the time to say, I need to listen to this person. I need to give a couple minutes of my time that's, it's, it's, it's no sweat off my back just to do this for a second. 
because it could lead to something. But you, not, you weren't thinking about this could lead no, to something right. else. But it always it always did because it was in service, as simple as saying hello to the person at the grocery store. Correct. To giving a few minutes to the bass player outside the dressing room. There's there's no difference between those two things. No, there isn't. And and the one thing I got to point out, a very important factor in this, and the universe is watching, is that you don't do it for what you can get. Well, what can I get? What what can, who right. who is this person that that who who may this person know that may be able to help me? Well, let me be nice to this person cuz maybe he can introduce me to his buddy who no, you don't do it for what you can get out of a conversation. You do it to serve the person and look at the help the person out. You do it because it feels good, not only to the person you're helping or advising or talking yeah, to or yeah. whatever, but it feels good to you. And then let the na- let nature take this course. There's there's a hundred other examples where I helped somebody out or gave a student a great advice and they ended up getting a great gig that didn't really have any sure. nothing came back to me yeah you know what i mean I, you don't do it for in, that in reason really but it only takes way. one yeah you know like yeah, you said you sure. throw a bunch of you know what against the wall and if there's one little bit that sticks again you 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 you, you mentioned something you have to recognize you gotta you gotta be ready for those opportunities to help yeah. people yeah. you can't just live in your own cocoon and go through life day after day after day living in a shell mm-hmm. without any participation in the welfare of other people that's what it's all about Well, before we go too far, I do want to thank Ben Hands for uh, making the introduction um, for us to meet. Uh, also, uh, we had an episode with Anthony Citronitti. Oh, awesome. Uh, He's my boy at the Collective. Yeah. Can I interrupt? Yeah, you can. Anthony Citronitti, when I taught at the Drummers Collective, in, I started in 1987, but somewhere around 1994... I gave Anthony Citronetti his first drum lesson at the Drummers Collective. He mentions that in his episode. He did? Yeah. Okay. And now he's the director. Now see, there we go. One thing leads to another. Mm-hmm. I have a chance to... Anthony reaches out. He's got this new app. Right. Uh, Meat Hook. Meat Hook. And we're talking, and he's talking about his time at the Collective. And uh, he says every time... Uh, Every time I see Sandy, he says, don't forget it. I was your first teacher. I gave yeah, you first lesson. He does. Lesson. He reminds me of that all the time. <laughs> and I, I, I can I could use this to, as a plug to Meat Hook. Meat Hook is M-E-E-T-H-O-O-K.com. Go on it, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for everybody to speak to drummers that they've always wanted to speak to and ask them questions, either yeah. do a drum lesson, uh, it's just, just go. I don't want to explain the whole thing, but just go ahead. M e e t h o o k dot com. And we and and also the the uh, on the podcast you can hear the interview with Anthony and he goes into to great detail. Awesome. And then you have an opportunity to talk to. Are you on Meat Hook? I am. I am on Meat Hook. So Hope. if if I'm not asking you the questions that if you're listening that I that you want me to ask. Then you can contact Sandy. And there you go. And I'd love to hear from you too. Okay, Matt completely glossed over this, and so I need to know. <laughs> right. I'm trying not to. Well, um, with enough time with me, I won't gloss over anything. I'll, 
Well, during that time, you, you put out a couple books when you were there. Um, yeah. Drum Basics, Steps 1 and 2, uh, Contemporary Rock Styles for Drums, both on Hal Leonard. Drum Basics 1 and 2 was done. Now, call it, what are you going to call it? You're going to call it being at the right place at the right time? You're going to call it whatever? But uh, my involvement at the Drummers Collective, which only happened because I did somebody a favor, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, while I was at the Drummers Collective... And the, uh, the, a month after my first child was born, I get contacted by, again, Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel, who at that point had DCI. They were the first pioneers in putting instructional VHS tapes, yeah. drumming instructional thing. Sure. And I went to the, the two directors at the time, Rob Wallace and Paul Siegel, and I said, hey, you know, there's no... The, you know, you can go, uh, students can buy a, or drummers, potential drummers can buy a Dave Weckl video, they can buy a Simon Phillips video, and all of a sudden you see Simon Phillips playing his, the, exhibiting his unbelievable talent, but what about the beginning drummer that doesn't want to be intimidated by all of that, f- you yeah. know, you need, so anyway, I did a drum basics one and two for, for and that was perfect timing because it was right after I bought a brand new house and have have a brand my first being being a father for the first time so that was perfect it was like having a little record deal and that uh, that video both parts one and two was a video it was transformed to dvd when dvds came out they they a book came from that and I'm still getting royalties from it from 1994 up until what is it 94 do the math 40 30. I can only count to four. So. Uh, right. And then go back to one again. <clears throat> but yeah. Uh, I want to jump into the 84 tour with Cindy Lauper. Okay. Uh, it's, she's just great. And, and just as time goes on, more and more people discover and remember how great she was at the beginning and continues to be in, cre- in the creative uh, all the things that she's introduced over time with her musical and, and just continues to sing her butt off. Right. Um, the, our, uh, my tech guy, Mike, and his wife saw her last year at the Ryman and said it was amazing. Yeah. And we were watching old videos for the, the 84 tour with you on it mm-hmm. and just the energy and just almost without a net performance mm-hmm. that was happening in 1984 that seems... Not to sound old, like get off my lawn guy, but that I just don't see as much. Right. Um, and it was just, it, it was so exciting to me. It was so fun to watch. Um, it took up a lot of my time in researching you is just watching those videos and just, I was just mm-hmm. so excited. Right. You had Simmons drums, electronic drums? On that tour, I had, it was a hybrid set. Yeah. I had, um, uh, an acoustic, I was a Ludwig endorser at the time. So I had an acoustic kick drum, acoustic snare drum in the, the conventional positions, uh, a, a hi-hat, and where the toms would go, I had a Simmons snare and then three Simmons toms next to it. So I had four Simmons pads where the toms would be. Yeah. Snare and three toms, uh, Simmons. And then on my right, I wanted to have acoustic rack tom somewhere. So I put the acoustic rack tom over where my acoustic floor tom would be. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cindy, the first day of rehearsal, said to me, Sandy, lose 
no, actually said before she, first day of rehearsal, before saying hello to me, she looked at my drum tech and said, lose his ride cymbal. My, my drummer doesn't play with a ride cymbal. <laughs> so she, my tech looked at me and I said, lose the ride cymbal. So, but I set up an, uh, an auxiliary hi-hat on the right side where the ride would be. And that was my kit, basically. And um, next to my acoustic bass drum, I had a Simmons bass drum. And, but I didn't play the two bass drums like alternately, like dugga, 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 mm -hmm. because it was two different sounds. Sure. But I used the Simmons to augment what you can do now with triggering. But um, again, this is 1984. Right. Uh, to augment, so in other words, in a chorus, I would go and double my acoustic bass drum part with the Simmons bass drum to give it more oomph, to give it more... With both feet? Yeah, I would, I would be playing my acoustic bass drum, whatever the pattern was. Boom, gakun, boom, ba, boom, gakun, boom. Then when the chorus came, I played the boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, with the, doubling my acoustic bass drum with the Simmons bass drum because of the electronic digital aspect uh -huh. of that Simmons bass drum. It was, it's a lot more present. So it gave a little bit of a firepower to the yeah, pattern. Yeah. And I did the same thing. She wanted a Simmons snare doubled with the acoustic snare because the Simmons snare basically on this one program had a white noise and it simulated the, the, sure. the, the, the sound of the record on Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Mm -hmm. Sort of like a little bit of a white noise thing. But she liked electronics, but she also liked acoustics. So we, I incorporated a hybrid. Mm -hmm. I started out with a, a SDS-5, okay. which, which the, the, the pads were like table, tabletops. Oh, yeah, they're, they're like plywood underneath a linoleum. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was like, this little, it looked like, a, it felt like you were playing on a tile floor. Yeah. Uh, and then, this, and then uh, I went from the 5 to SDS-7s after that. And they had the pads that were kind of had a sheet of rubber over it, but that's but yeah. So, okay. but again, being involved with Simmons because of Cindy, I met John DeChristopher, who was a Simmons rep at that point. Mm -hmm. But then he went over to Zildjian. I was with Pasty. When are you coming over to Zildjian? When are you going? And then years later, because that was a friendship that I had made and always kept in touch, and ran into him at Nam shows and stuff. I ended up going with Zildjian years later. So yeah. Well, was there any latency issues with the Simmons pads? In playing uh, at that time, you employing electronics in 84? Uh, there was, no, there wasn't any kind of triggering problems because of the way I used the Simmons, the way I used the electronics. I wasn't actually soloing on them. Yeah. So I wasn't playing a lot of notes, a lot of gr uh, ghost notes or grace notes or... Yeah. You know, I wasn't doing a lot of that. I was just playing stuff like that, depending on the tune. Mm -hmm. Or doubling, mm -hmm. you know, doubling my acoustic floor tom with my low Simmons tom to yeah. make it, you know, if it was you know, on the, on the two and four or whatever, the back. So it was used very sparsely. The notes were kind of far apart enough where there was, there was I didn't have any issue with double triggering gotcha. or anything like that. Gotcha. Yeah. I always wonder about because you know the advancements in technology uh, being what they are. Right. You go back and I, I see those things and I, I hear that stuff and I'm like, man, what what was that like? Right. You know, just getting getting past that and and how far we've come and yet it was still very usable. Yeah. You know. It's, yeah. And it's it's so fun to watch. It is. Sure. 
It is. So from, uh, you, we have a mutual friend, Luis Espaillat. Yeah. He's also been a guest on the podcast. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful bass player and, mm -hmm. and human being as well. Right. He, uh, he, he said, uh, make sure you ask him about, uh, let me see, ask him about making sure that you end a song with the button. The what? The, the button. button. <laughs> well, there's a little thing. <laughs> he goes, he'll know. I don't know what this is. Well, the button. The button is, you know, bam, 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 bam. You know, when you cue, yeah. when yeah. you cue, we call. I call that the button, and that that the button has has morphed into kind of like a trademark thing that I do. Uh, uh, sometimes it's with a band that I'm playing with, but a lot of times it just happens. In the in, when I'm in a jam situation, like when I sit in at the Rock and Roll Residency here in Nashville, mm -hmm. uh, or I'm in a when I did when I did the drum the drumathon the breast cancer thing when I'm in a situation like that where I'm sitting in with a, new, a band for, I'll say watch me at the end. So for example, if we're going, uh, I, I'll do like a Simon Says thing like, at the end of a song. So if, if for example, if a song is ending, a rock and roll song is ending, and I'll always tell the band, watch me when you when you're fanfare in that. Watch me, and staccato notes. So, and I stand up now. I'm holding a cymbal, switch, and I'm going bam. And I'll stand up and I'll go bam, 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 bam. And I'm I'm crashing the cymbal at this at what my voice is saying now. That's yeah, when yeah, the cymbal sure. crashes with the bass drum underneath it. Yeah, yeah. And they're watching me going dang, dang. And then I'll say, when I sit down and, and hit the snare, then we hit the, the final button. Final button. So we go, bam, bam, bam. Then I'll sit down and go, ba -ba 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 boom. Bam. And that's the final button in LA. And the that's set. great. That's, yeah. the, that's what's been known as my friend Greg Mangus uh, calls it Sandy Candy. At the end, at the Trademark. end of the song, it's just a little fun. It's like a Simon says, and sometimes I'll fake the band out. I'll, I'll I go as if I'm hitting the cymbal, but I won't. And I'll go ah, busted, busted. You know, if I if I don't hit something and they do, like I go Simon says, Simon says, do this. It's funny. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> thanks, Luis. <laughs> you did a four month tour with a German band, Kraft. Yes, C R A A F T. Correct. You Not did your research. Yeah. Not Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk was with a K. Yes. With right. one A. Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk. Uh, so this is Kraft. You did a four-month tour opening up for Queen. Correct. 86. Correct. Summer of. So 85 was Live Aid, and many of us know that performance that Queen was not expected to do well. Every, you, everyone was focused on U2 on that that, the, right. that that concert, but Queen came out and just destroyed. Absolutely, and they were just at the height for sure. Anything about that? I'm a huge Queen fan. Anything about that tour that you can recall, um, Matt? That was one of again that gig came about as a in a feeling a spirit of service, where a manager from New York said, "Do you want to go do this record with this German band? You have to go to Frankfurt, blah blah blah." And it was just I just did it as a session. And I flew to Frankfurt, did the record, and about three months, four months later, uh, they called me and they said, we want you to do the tour um, in support of the record. And 
again, I was involved in arena size acts at that point, so I asked for a certain kind of compensation, and they said we can't really we can't really afford that. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that's my price. Mm-hmm. And now we're going back and forth in the 80s, transcontinental phone calls. This is no cell phones, no emails, no nothing. So about five or six conversations later, the manager of the German band came to me and said, his name is Uwe Block. He said to me, the band, there was three guys signed to the label, three German guys signed to Epic Germany. And he said, each of the guys in the band are giving you a half a point on the record. So you'll have a point and a half. So we can't afford to pay you your weekly cash salary, mm-hmm. but you'll be getting this. But uh, Yeah, mm-hmm. but we're, we're going to augment what we can give you financially with the point and a half on the record. If the record becomes a success, you're going to share in the profits. So you're becoming a band. We're making you a band member, maybe a little less level than three guys, but you're going to share in this. So I decided to do it. After all these transcontinental calls, I said, who was the tour with? And they said, Queen. And I almost dropped the phone on the floor. <laughs> I would have, I would have fucking <laughs> edit. Yeah. I would have did that tour. For, I would have did that tour for two hundred a week. Yeah, if touring. Work. So we, it, it was the. It was one of the more enjoyable tours of my whole life. Mm. Touring with this band, yeah, because they were awesome. The first night, I remember this like it was yesterday. The first night we opened for Queen. Uh, we're done now. We're in our dressing room, toweling off. And Brian May comes in our dressing room with his guitar on, all ready to go on stage. He's, they're getting the stage ready for Queen. And he goes, welcome to this tour, guys. Listen, my name is Brian May, and I, uh, I want you to know that if you have any problems on this tour, you come to me. You don't go to production manager. You don't go to the road manager. You don't go to anybody on my crew. You come to me. And that's the fastest route of having your problems solved. So uh, welcome that. Welcome to the tour. And by the way, when we, we now they did two and three nights in each city. He said, the first night we get to a new city, the record company usually holds a private party for us in a very famous restaurant or a venue in whatever city we on we're on you guys are always invited just show your laminate my road manager will tell you a road manager where the party is on that given night come to the party and hang with us and party with us you're always welcome so lo and behold even though the other guys in the band sometimes they didn't go i went to every single party mm. and me and brian kind of hit it off really well john deacon you never saw unless he was on stage. You never saw him socialize. But Freddie was around, yeah. always surra- with his boyfriend, and mm-hmm. surrounded by a, a security, even at a private party, he was surrounded by security. So I never really kind of penetrated that circle. Mm-hmm. But after partying with Brian, after a few nights, he said to me, and his drink was gin and tonic. And I remember, because he used to glow under the day glow lights, the gin and tonic, Tanqueray and tonic. Uh, he, oh, did you ever meet Freddie? And I said, no. He said, well, come on. So he brought me over and, you know, seeing Brian May approach the, the security split like the Red, the Red Sea. And so, but he was very nice. Freddie was very, very spoken, soft-spoken, um, very unlike his stage personality, very subdued, soft-spoken. Welcome, welcome, Sandy. Very nice. You guys sounding great. Thanks for being professional, whatever. He had very complimentary things to say. And I said, Freddie, listen, uh, I like to take pictures, I always had my Nikon on me. He go, I said, do you mind while you guys are on stage if I can 
takes some pictures. He goes, yeah, just make sure you wear your laminate and just try to stay out of the view of the audience. So the audience can't say you, see you, but you could take, sure, take pictures. So what I did was, so what I did was when, okay, when, bro, when well, I'll bring it over. When, when uh, Freddie was sitting at, sitting at the grand piano, facing stage right. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that picture's I on pay, your website, too. I, I think it is, yeah. yeah. I pay my dues, and he starts with the piano with Bohemian Rhapsody, was, or We Are the Champions, or whatever it is. I took some shots with him. And uh, it, was, it was just, it was just, that tour was just great. The venues that we played, um, again, it was, uh, as far as traveling, we, you know, for example, Paris, we arrived on a Monday. We played Monday night and Tuesday night, sometimes a third night. In whatever city, so we had a, a lot of chance to uh, to, um, be tourists in whatever city we were on. It was just, it was awesome. It was great. That's that's awesome, man. That's and nothing great. actually happened with the record, with the craft record. I mean, it, it, we toured four months with Queen. We did our own little little tour after that, mm-hmm. but nothing really happened. But that tour stands out as one of the one of the most enjoyable because of the people that were involved. And that happened to be Freddie's last tour. He never really toured again after that. Mm. And again, I have to mention this, that if you get the Queen DVD live at Wembley, 1986, yes. Yes. Yeah. we opened that. Really? We opened that show. Yeah, we were on the whole tour. Yeah. And... During the interview, I think they were into on the DVD. They were interviewing like the backstage. The backstage. Yeah, yeah. They were interviewing the monitor guy or uh-huh, something. Uh-huh. And if you look behind the monitor guy, there's my roadie carrying my drums off. They interviewed the monitor guy during set change. Okay. So you see my roadie carrying my white Ludwig's off the stage. You know, getting yeah, to, yeah. that's as close as we got to that's the, <laughs> being the DVD. I love it, man. I love it. <laughs> I want to make sure that we mention the Drumathon. Uh, this uh, April Samuels is the founder of this Breast Cancer Can Stick It that uh, I know um, you were involved with uh, yeah. recently, a couple weeks ago. JC, our friend JC Clifford and Rich Redman, of course. Um, Mark Shulman from Pink. Yeah, yeah. He was one of the drummers involved. It's a very worthy cause. And, and listen, you can go on breastcancercanstickit.com and make a donation. Um, it's a very worthy cause. April Samuels is a cancer survivor, and she started this foundation. And every year she has a fundraiser. And I was involved in 2017, involved in 2018. It's, it's totally... Uh, you know, we, we do it for, for the charity. We, we don't get, all the drummers don't get paid or any, none, none of that. And it's a very, we raised, uh, this was just this past Sunday, uh, September 30th, 2018, and we raised $50,000. That's amazing. And, you know, the, it's the kind of thing we do a little, each celebrity, quote unquote celebrity drummer does a little solo, plays to some tracks that he's famous for being involved with, and then... Uh, the audience could pledge $20 while I'm up there. Let's say, for example, a drummer in the audience can donate $20 and come and play on the other drum set with me and do do one minute. And they have a guy on the side of the stage timing it. Very highly organized. I will do it every year she asks me to do it because it's, she's awesome, highly organized. It's a family kind of situation. And all the drummers that do it love to do it. And... Um, 
So go ahead and donate breastcancerconsticket.com. I love it. I love it. How about the rest of your year? What's you the rest seen? of the year? Um, right now, as a result of <laughs> as a result of uh, touring, opening for Ted Nugent, as I mentioned, yeah. the the guitar player and uh, besides Ted was Derek St. Holmes. Yeah, and Dave Cassini was the bass player. We became friends on that tour in 1982. We remain friends. They live in Nashville. When I moved to Nashville uh, in 2014, we started playing together. So that's one of the gigs that I have mm-hmm. in Nashville is playing with Derek St. Holmes. I just did B.B. Uh, Buell's record a few months ago. Um, and I, uh, Kip Winger, who also lives in Nashville, yeah. um, I played on a Broadway. He, he wrote a rock musical called um, Get Jack, and I played on the soundtrack. So I'm doing some sessions here. I'm I'm expanding my uh, speaking career. I do some teaching here in my studio. Um, So it's just a mixture of of different things. So I I teach drums, I'm doing some speaking, I'm doing some sessions, and I'm playing live four or five times a month with Derek here in town. And so that's what keeps me alive. Plus, I just I'm raising a, uh, a, a Doberman Pinscher uh, puppy, so that keeps me pretty busy. And I do my own landscaping on my property, so that keeps me busy. I'm a very home a home oriented guy. I love my house, and I love you know. I just love the way my life is. I just love it, and um, so that's that's basically it. It's been awesome, man. That's great. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I, I wish people could see the studio and the two beautiful DW kits we have here. And all that stuff. Yep. Uh, hey, Sandy, thank you so much. You're man. welcome, uh, Matt. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me and thinking of me. And uh, again, thanks to Ben Hans and, uh, and Luis for his suggestion of uh, the button question. <laughs> and uh, uh, I appreciate it, Matt. Thank yeah. you. Anything I can help you out with in the future, recommendations okay. of other drummers that may want to do this, you let me know and Perfect. I'm there for you. Great. Thanks, man. Quick shout out to Ben Hans again for helping Sandy and I make the connection for this episode. It was uh, super fun and great to uh, hear those stories and watch some of those videos leading up to our interview of the live performances that he did with Cindy Lauper, as well as the story he talks about touring with Queen. It's pretty amazing. And uh, some of the pictures he had of Freddie behind the piano just it's just amazing it just makes me super excited and of course as soon as we were done with that i went home and started listening to queen uh once again go to breastcancerconsticket.org you can see more information on what april samuels is up to in her efforts to raise awareness about breast cancer don't forget like i mentioned at the beginning we are expanding our youtube channel to include every episode now this takes a while to do so As I prepare them, I'll launch them in groups of 10. So I have the first 10 episodes out for you to check out, and I'll tweak that along the way. And uh, you can hear some of the early episodes where I was still learning about interviewing and audio quality and all those things. So the information is there. The uh, conversations are there with some super great guests, close friends, and I'm, I'm proud of where we began. I'm excited of where we've come. Uh, within this last three and a half years uh, in the quality, but uh, I am still just as proud as, uh, of those first few episodes or the first year than I am uh, as I am now. So please go to YouTube, go to Working Drummer, use YouTube channel, subscribe to that, add comments, 
uh, just participate in the conversation that we as drummers and the community do so well. So stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. <laughs>